Now, if you feel like you can never get on top of your back of house ops, you'll want to hear about our sponsor for this season, Loaded. Loaded's hospitality management software has changed the game for hospitality performance in New Zealand, and they've just arrived in Australia to help you do the same. Their everything-in-one-place platform helps you master your reporting inventory, simplify your recipe and menu management, reduce your cogs, and become an epic central hub that immediately puts you in control. I've seen Loaded's impact firsthand, and if you're running a bar, pub, restaurant or cafe, you need to reach out to their team. Check them out at loadedhub.com. Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning in. Principle of Hospitality has been developed to tell the stories of professionals within the dynamic world of hospitality. We're straight talking, ethically minded and a reliable online source of information and inspiration for people in the hospitality industry. Now with today's show, today we have the pleasure of speaking with a dynamic duo behind Cirque de Soil, founder Gene Darling and Finance and Impact Advisor, Stephen Mason. Cirque du Soil is a groundbreaking brand revolutionizing how we approach circular waste management in the hospitality industry with a strong focus on environmental impact, transparency, and innovative technology. They're setting the standard for sustainability. So join us today as we talk about the amazing things they're doing in the hospitality industry. Gene, Stephen, hey, how are you? Hello. Good. It's fantastic. Sorry, I, you know that was a that was a mouthful. I made myself talk about in that intro, so I apologise for that. Fantastic to have you both on. I've been super excited about this, especially Gene, as we as we talked about a month ago, I think now about you know what you guys have been doing. So maybe if we start out with you, Gene, if talk about how you started out with Cirque du Soil and then how you've got it to this point at the moment. Mm, well. My background is actually originally in architecture and placemaking. And so, you know, understanding difficult urban environments is kind of my jam. And obviously living and working and playing in the city, that, that's sort of our home ground. So I was actually working in, a, in an ESD consulting firm, for anyone who doesn't know, that is environmental sustainable development. And so I was actually sitting next to a bunch of environmental consultants who were doing waste management plans. And in the world of architecture, it's just not a sexy topic. So, you know. Usually no one cares about the waste management plans. One of those days, I leaned across and I said, hey, you know, what are you working on? And they were getting their permits. So there's always uh, in the planning process, you get designers requesting waste management plans so they can get their permits through to build, you know, potentially another shipbuilding. But anyway, what I realized was the the fact that they pointed to the waste management rooms. They said, all we do is specify landfill and recycling and how the trucks get to them. And I said, that's it. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, that's it. It's just about excess. And I said, well, where are the other bins? And where are the other source separation infrastructure? And anyway, given my background, you know, we've we've often looked at the whole building. But now in the last couple of years, since 2019, I left that job because I realized that nothing's going to happen unless I tried to do something about it. And Mm. I really wanted to try and get onto sort of 
you know, at that point in time, there was only share waste, you know, and there's regrounding, coffee grounds, there's, you know, uh, in terms of organic waste, there's just not a lot of options other than, you know, hiring a bin company to come in and do a single bin. So at that point as well, I was helping the office to do their B Corp status. And so I spoke to my ex-boss and he said, you know, I just want to get a compost bit in there. And it was a co-working space. And I said, you know, how about we share a bin? share a compost bin and that's there's a Sri Lankan restaurant underneath and I said I went downstairs and I said hey would you guys want to use this bin if we activated it and at that point everyone just looked confused as to why I was trying to do this and I actually got a bunch of quotes <laughs> thought about a big dumpster full of organic waste then I looked down the street and I was like this is North Fitzroy so it's mm. North Fitzroy village it's full of you know every high street has got restaurants cafes bars the same demographic mixed throughout every high street that we live on and I was like, there's something here. And so how about, you know, I get started on this thing called the Community Compost Collective. So if you look at the current way we run this and everyone's like, you know, we use buckets. And the reason why we use buckets is because it really helps with understanding contamination rates. It's smaller, it's defter. If you look at our urban streets, we really don't have a lot of space. So we live in Fitzroy and often the, the roads are just clogged with big, multinational trucks, company truck. Mm -hmm. They're coming in and they block everybody up. And I thought there must be a smaller, defter way of doing this. So because I've had a background as well in like startups and social enterprise, I thought let's merge all, all these combination of things. And I actually had to big borrow steel in office space, found one and brought together a bunch of people from across the community. Some people were from, you know, urban design, some people from who are just passionate about permaculture. And we just sort of had a little bit of a think tank and, you know, trying to move from one industry into waste management. <laughs> <laughs> I can just say even four years on, people still turn around and they go, hey, so you you just pick up rubbish, don't you? <laughs> and anyway, long story short, like, the valorization of like food waste you know i mean my joke is that you know it's like hair and when it's on your head it's precious and once it's cut off it's like crap on the floor you know so you know the hair dressing industry has the same problem and if you look at the high street the biggest impact point was hospitality like no doubt like no matter how we stress tested it and we actually did two years worth of street engagement programs and where we did this for free, but we ran around and we interviewed everybody. So I'm talking about, you know, left no stone unturned. We even talked to every hospitality profile that we could think of, the bakeries, the restaurants, the cafes. But then we also looked at retail, you know, but we could see where the impact really was. So then we started our operations. And that was also a big borrow steel scenario. <laughs> uh, when I say steel, I mean like, you know, we rented. But we, we've tried everything to cart around these buckets. And one of the things that this program is quite different, and I'm saying this program actually, community composting is not a new concept. If you look mm. in the US, there are people touting around buckets everywhere. But they do it with the low and slow method. For us, because we live in an urban environment, we use food recycling tech. So for anybody who knows what a previously badged dehydrator. They've now renamed it as food recycling tech. But this space is really interesting because EPA Victoria and even New South Wales, they don't know what to do with this stuff that comes out. So Cirque's mission has always been to, you know, how do we grow local food and how do we, you know, how do we get it back to the ground? And so we started the prototype of a 5K radius organics collection program. And then COVID hit. 
So then that suited us very well because there was only five Ks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that was the funny bit. But hospital was hit so hard. And so, you know, I remember just that shape-shifting, you know, hey, we're shut. Oh, actually, now we've got 20 more buckets, actually, because we couldn't sell our wares. And, you know, we just had to work and flow through this period. But then obviously during that period, the news hit a lot. And, you know, that you know that weekend when it was Chinese New Year, Valentine's Day, yep. the, the news reports about the amount of food waste they had to throw out because everyone got shut. Mm. Incredible. So anyway, we knew we were onto something, not at that scale of where we could mobilize 100 tons or something, but we persevered. And uh, since then, we've also moved towards sort of like, yeah, we've actually been doing an R&D project with RMIT and with the horticulture and science team, basically with the idea of how to grow food. If we had just gone with the low and slow method, it would have probably been a very slow process to produce this stuff, but these machines can process anywhere from 400 kilos to one ton a day. And so we can't afford this tech. So let's get back to this tech story. I guess it will cost about the price of a one-bedroom apartment, I don't know, six years ago maybe to afford one of these. <laughs> and so, you know, I remember running around the Waste Expo talking to all these manufacturers and I said to them, once you process this stuff, what happens to it? And I think there's been a lot of, like a lot less research around how it grows food. And so I wanted to see their, you know, the community gardens they were potentially distributing it to or who's veggie gardens, just show me one of them. And in the end, when we applied for a grant, it was off the backbone of tech we didn't own tech we didn't necessarily the outputs we didn't necessarily own either and we but we wanted to know and investigate whether it could and so two has it been two years two years on we've just finished r d trial so we were growing spinach and tomatoes and this grant was actually by recycling victoria's organic grants we were the only startup there amongst a bunch of like really big agriculture companies and you know where we looked like a ragtag bunch that turned up with no pre previous soil knowledge so we've gone from i guess that systems thinking you know engagement talking to hospitality all right we've got it out you know we've gotten it out of the you know the the, the kitchens now what and so we actually just broke a usage of this tech but uh, we've actually now found out that it, it can absolutely be called fertilizer and so um, last night we were prototyping how we can make, you know, basically products out of this stuff wow. and hopefully something that will sit in restaurants, cafes with a story, maybe be part of a nursery someday, who knows. So anyway, that's our circular section project one, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how Cirque started. And I guess that, that community composting idea is still very strong and there's still a lot of potential. Mm. That's a great start. Thank you for that. When you first started and you talk about bringing these people together. Hmm. How, how did that happen? And then how did, how did Stephen come up? <laughs> how did you guys get connected and sort of how, oh. did, how did you get people on this mission and journey with you guys? Well, Steve's a funny one. So I, I had a motorbike after I gave birth. I think I went through this crisis of like, I, I, <laughs> like, who am I and what should I be doing? And so I went back to night school. This was before Cirque started. But then I got a motorbike, was very heavily frowned upon. And then at one point, while doing the startup world, I was going back and forth, another co-working space. I stacked my bike right. <laughs> in the rain, wet weather, Ooh. went down pretty hard and fast. But then when I was unhurt, thank God, but then I got up and I went, ah, damn, I've just wrecked my bike. Mm. And then at that point, there was a really good community for motorbikers called Custom Commune. 
and Steve was happen happened to be one of the guys who was part of that space and basically I hired him to do a masterclass <laughs> on how to fix my bike and I actually wanted to hire someone else but he was like oh no no you should meet Steve and then when we actually met I was just blown away by how much similarities we had and one of them was social and environmental impact impact and then about I think at that point I had just started Cirque and I said you know hey you know would you come on as to be an advisor so yeah, somehow or rather that's, that's ended up the way it is. But I also learned how to do wiring for a motorbike in this process. <laughs> <laughs> Always an important skill, I'd imagine. <laughs> I now leave it all back to him. <laughs> uh, I, I think for, at that point in time too, it was just the, the great challenge. I mean, we didn't really know COVID was about to hit, but, but looking at this, you know, I do a lot of work around helping purpose first businesses start up and scale up and transform. And looking at this great, hairy, audacious goal of going, well, you want to work in the areas where they're the hardest areas. So the left behind, we call them. The areas that council can't really address and that policies are you know, not really written for and where a lot of impact can be happened, can, can occur. Now, you know, we can't set aside and ignore the, the massive impact from the multinationals and you know, the, the big retailers and the producers, but we go, well, that doesn't mean we can't have an impact elsewhere, particularly in food systems. And then when you look at a business model, you go, well, ultimately you need to work towards finding you know, commercial sustainability in your own business. So how do you do that in a purpose-first business? And that was, the, I think, the fun thing that really actually drew me into to Cirque, to go, well, what do you need capital-wise? What do you need from a skills base? How do you want to address these issues? And probably where the similarity of, you know, Gene being a regen practitioner, me being more in business transformation, I just requalified doing an MBA in global sustainability. And so let's bring these things together. Let's also take some of what I've been teaching, you know, in universities for a while. And let's start with doing stakeholder mapping. You know, if we want to design market interventions they've got to come from the coalface they've got to appreciate the macro as well but some businesses can go through an evolution process others you know that might be you know what we call kind of you know born new age you know might actually start off on a complete set of principles that are and we'd like to support both of them but if we want to enact change where the opportunity is greatest it's got to be a little bit more by gentle gentle nudging gentle support and we've got to find short medium and long-term value for them so from that point of view, I think that's what's actually been incredibly, not just exciting and really draws a lot of people in, but it's been part of the success formula. And you go, well, we need to understand you know, the behavioural challenges from your team. If your team is always rotating or if they're stable, they're going to be different. The demographic of people you hire, the, the ownership structure you have is going to you know, have positive and negative implications on it. In any of them, we need to also find you that lasting value. And you know, if you want to break it down from a sort of, you know, business competitive type type element you go well you know there is no best of anything it's always around how you differ it and mm. we often express that in terms of a value proposition so how can we help evolve and help you find a more lasting sustainable value proposition and from that point of view you look at what impact positive impact that can have on on, on team members you know more prideful employment more agency and it's interesting just the spread of all of us, really. Sometimes we're really good at engaging with our teams and our customers and our suppliers to solve some of the issues. But we've got the day-to-day -day challenges. So unless there's some major reason, we won't usually go down those, those routes. Unless something's broken or we're building something, we don't tend to always go and talk to our suppliers and say, hey, look, I've got this big issue. You give me two tonnes of plastic a week, but I like your stuff. How do we move past this? You know, likewise, talking to your, your barista or your chef and going, look, we have got, you know, 30 kilos a day of, of prep waste. What can we do with that? 
well, give me some time and I'll work it out. Some, there can be some quite simplistic things, but mm. I think that's been the fun thing with designing all of the services and the, I guess the, the, the way that Cirque is serving its, its, its base is helping people identify where they can find those ideas and values, get a really realistic understanding of you know, the barriers to overcome and just taking a persona-based approach. So if you look at stakeholder design, stakeholder-led design, co-design, sort of those theories and practices, they work best when you go down a route of really understanding the problem. But then as a business, really working out the personas you're working with. So you know, quite early on it was, well, here we've got a, 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 mud, a mud persona, multi-unit <laughs> development. What barriers do they face? You know, well, who are the enablers there? Well, maybe it's body corporate. You know, firstly, we'd like to build a better building, but we have to work with the existing buildings. Mm. And again, look, no building's the same. You know, some might have a 60% Airbnb rate. Some might have a student base. So others, high ownership. Like if you look at some of the build-to-rent models, they might have a more stable occupancy base. So you go, well, if we help do behavioural change in here and we also put in the systems that you need, we're probably going to have to do a little bit less maintenance than in a space where it's Airbnb every day and international students coming in and out every six to 12 months. So really looking at that and going, there is no one set that's constant. So how do we just continue to inform and really empower so that people know what they're going into when they're going to do some change and that ultimately from a kind of an environmental transparency point of view, coming back and actually telling them what impact they're having with what can be proven. And that's probably where the... like. A little bit of the the great frustration comes in in terms of how do you express this? How do you prove this? Like it's easy for us to say, for instance, that you know, say a typical restaurant we might support and serve that's a reasonable volume, that we might just by addressing the food waste stream reduce their overall global you know greenhouse gas emissions by 20, 30, 40 tons a year. But how do you express you know moving from you know from from coal energy to green energy? We know what some of those results are. But there's so many variables in there, much like, you know, taking a, a paper cup out of production and replacing it with, with something else. It's really hard to work out what was that initial negative carbon value of the, the original to show a baseline trend. We can say, look, it has an impact. How much, how do you express that? Well, maybe that has to be expressed in terms of things you're not doing anymore mm. or things you are doing. And ultimately, how do you weave that into how you talk to your suppliers, to your customers, so that they want to be, you know, they want to increase their patronage with you. And again, just really helping to incubate those conversations to occur. So I think that's kind of the the loose formula that's really brought Cirque to where it is now. That's been part of the, I think, the success of the journey. Yeah. It's an interesting point, actually, because we had Marky from Frank Wild, which does sustainable events, right? And Mm. on the podcast in the last couple of months and recently, I, I remember mentioning to him, I'm like, well, how do you know when to stop? Like when it when is it good enough or when do you know when so how deep do you want to go like how deep do you want to go in regards with catering that you're doing for an event or you know are you talking about electric trucks which then deliver stuff to events like when yeah. do you know is good enough like and so they've sort of done a baseline and a calculator around that like mm. super interesting yeah. Um, yeah but I was gonna ask Jenny I'm super curious you know how you talked about in the early days of you starting this and you did a lot of talking to venues and obviously hospitality and other venues but like what what is their thought process around sustainability what is their thought process around food waste is it like as i imagine that especially with people in hospo like we have a collective mission of wanting to serve mm-hmm. so therefore most people want to do the right thing right but knowledge 
is the thing that is kind of confusing at the moment, I feel, around this area potentially. Mm-hmm. Like what was the feedback that you were getting from hospitality venues when you were doing those conversations? So, so the very first year we did trader engagement, we just went in there with no agenda except to learn their barriers and challenges. I also thought that process was quite interesting as, as to our initial prejudices, for example, or, you know, preconceived thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, being Asian, I would went into a Chinese takeaway shop and I'm like, ah, you probably wouldn't want to compost. You probably don't know what that is. I'm just saying that because a lot of, you know, if you go back to Malaysia or Singapore, for example, they're still stuck on one bin system. Like, actually, Mm -hmm. Singapore is changing now, but in Malaysia, it actually, that's the way it is. And uh, so anyway, when we walked into a Thai restaurant, you know, Indian restaurants, um, there's a cultural lens look at this i as long as they want big box stores i'm not talking about franchises but it's the mom and pop shop everyone's a busy business owner and being business owners ourselves like it's hard work to look away outside of your business and think about you know the the broader you know impact that you're having as a business you're just trying to thrive feed your kids put food on the table you know all life right so we, we asked quite a few pertinent questions, which is, you know, how much waste do you think you've got? How much food waste do you think you've got? Why don't you do this? Like, how do you... And I always had a strategy to talk to the owner and the head chef. And together, the amount of intel we got. Cost was a big one. A lot of council conversations also occurred. And, you know, this shouldn't be us. We're waiting for the government to do this. Why doesn't council offer us one, you know? And so there is this thing where... Some people didn't want to, they knew it was the right thing to do, but it just wasn't common practice. And this is like late 2019 when I had these conversations. And at that point, landfill levies were starting to rise. And so we were sort of riding on that, hey, you know, if you don't think about this now, eventually this is going to catch up with you. So why not start source separating and you'll find that financials might actually equalize. I actually met a few who said I'm too cheap to pay for waste management. So I use the council or the, the street bins outside. <laughs> And I've walked into, you know, kebab shops and they were like, oh, no, no, we we feed all our waste to the dogs. And I was like, oh, even the salad. And so there was a lot of like, you know, very all sorts of conversations on perceptions of what that meant to do. And this is also before the compostable, you know, the single use plastics ban. And just so you know, I would I did do a consulting gig for a while where we I was actually working on the single use plastic ban before it got rolled out. And so we had to stress test all of these items that were in hospitality events, we had to look at international examples of what's actually happening out there and how can we bring it into Victoria or what did it mean on Victorian level. And when that single-use plastic ban hit, like everybody had that mad scramble to, you know, reuse or compostable, but the greenwashing is still rife, right? So it's like, the whole journey of knowing where everyone's thinking or, you know, who's got time to sit there and do an academic journal research on greenwashing and, you know, wish cycling. So, yeah, so I think that's why we ended up going from just organics to food systems waste because then there was packaging. There's, you know, like everyone's like, hey, let's pivot. Let's now, you know, you know, everyone's on Uber Eats and then some people are like, oh, Uber Eats is too expensive. Let's use a different platform. That's where everyone's thinking at. But then coming down to the crunch of it, it's actually quite prolific to not know where it actually goes. So just for example, when you do work like this, you don't switch off because you're always eating, buying food, something, something around food systems, right? And Steve and I went to a Korean barbecue place. I'm not going to name who, but they had biopack 
on their front window a poster and they were very proud of it. And they were like, we use, you know, compostable packaging here. And uh, I said, cool. And I know, you know, I'm a big supporter of what they do. But I also know that unless you have a biopack recovery bin, you can't actually compost it. So then we sat there and they, <laughs> they had compostable packaging at the table. So I was a bit puzzled by that and because they didn't use their own plates. And then at the end, when we paid up, I said, hey, you know, I noticed you have this stuff. Like, so do you have an organics bin? And the guy looked at me blankly and I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Why would we have such a thing? And that just confused us, you know. I was like, okay, so they think they're doing the right thing, but they don't realize where it's going. And at the end of the day, you could have just used your own plates and washed it, you know. So were they putting that in general waste? I don't know whether they, they, that we well Steve walked out to the bins <laughs> <laughs> of course why not yes <laughs> yeah and they only had landfill and recycling so I'm like I have no idea what they do with it well which one they think it's going into but uh, that's what I mean by like you have to actually chase the line the supply sure. chain right and you think you've bought a product and it's good enough but then you haven't delivered the next phase of thinking and so and that's what we like to do and just like you said before how long is a piece of string like, if I even buy a product that's made in China, but it's a reused product, is that good enough? Yep. You know? But then, you know, and so we actually have a lot of supply connections where I've said, we've done the same thing. We were like, oh, okay, it's a bi- material byproduct that's made, but it's made in China, but it's for the use of reuse, you know? At which point is it okay or not okay? And I think that moving forwards, if it's actually not using, you know, non-biodegradable products, then... I, I would say I, I, I support that. Mm. You know, it's the next best thing. If we can bring it local, even better when the manufacturing is localized. But I think we just have to be gentle with how we frame or expect the best. It's, you know, and, and progress, not perfection. That's a big rabbit hole too with a lot of the stuff, isn't it? I mean, you talked about electric vehicles before. Mm. If you go out and look how a lot of them are, are made in Australia, for instance, for, for domestic purposes, we might start with something that started as a petrol vehicle and then retrofit it. So then you go, well, What's happening with all those, you know, the, the, there's all this extra amortised value in, you know, the entire transmission and drivetrain that's been set aside and maybe it's gone back into the system. But, you know, trying to do a full life cycle assessment of that compared to, say, something that's got a combustion engine is not all that easy. You know, look, there's a lot of ignored sections like, you know, tyre emissions are probably about half of what a footprint is in a, in a vehicle. And now we've got these things that might weigh, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a small format, delivery truck might actually weigh 50 60 percent more before you even look at energy provenance and and all the issues around that and it's really like you look at that as a barrier for someone to go i don't know if i should say i actually do run my own you know, service should i get electric vehicles it's not an easy one to add because you go well it might be an indicator to your customers and your other you know stakeholders that you value it but also for those ones that are really really academic about it and puritanical and have actually followed the line all the way might look at the issue of you know cobalt extraction and all the other bits of it and go actually that's a bad choice you know we've just had to wrestle with that as solution ourselves to go well we you know we're in the process of getting a, a new micro truck for our for our collection service and go well firstly right now in australia there isn't really anything in that space in a tiny format secondly we could go and we could recover something that's you know it's already had its first life and you know, and we, we do some other work with some some companies to do electrification of, of, of vehicles, and it's like not that hard to actually do a project to rebuild an old vehicle and get it back on the road. Separating the fact that where does the thing charge, and you know, ultimately, you know, the even if we 
purchase an equal amount of green energy, you know, we're still pulling out of the grid. But you go, well, the lightest weight, ultimately it's all around carbon miles. So we, we've actually, from that point of view, you know, with as much science behind it as we can, we've settled up on actually bringing in a, a micro truck. You know, it's 660 cc's, it weighs virtually nothing, and that's perfectly matched to our need in terms of daily capacity with what we do with, with what our, our recycling tech can do. And you go, well, that flow all that down, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. But it's really hard to have the time to, for anyone, particularly busy business owners, to go that level of depth with anything. Much like, you know, the, the biopack and the compostable packaging, we go, well, where is it actually going to enter a bin? Mm. You know, if, if somebody's going to go and use this out in the street, and then what, are the, what is the council offering? As much as they can. Yes. But they mostly just have landfill bins around and probably couldn't go in a paper bin anyway. So it's, yeah, just trying to really help them understand that full cycle when they're making those selections. Yeah. Because I want to hear, Stephen, like how you guys ensure transparency for hospitality venues. Because, mm. and I'll just preface this before, like we were on, mm. a, I was on a panel this year about sustainable packaging called Unpack in collaboration with Principal Design and us, and uh, and I I basically said to the room I was on a panel with uh, some fantastic people, mm. and I said exactly what you just said. So, if I'm in the CBD yeah. and I go get a coffee, in a not a sustainable coffee cup. Mm. And I go put it in a – if I go walk around Swanson Street and I go put it in a general waste bin or even a – like I can't put it in a recycling mm. bin because it can't be recycled. So what is the point of that cafe doing a commercially compostable cup? Can I, can I say something really quick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Firstly, compostability actually happens when the conditions are right. Mm. And I think what people don't realise is that if it's sitting – if you bought a compostable cup – and you've put it on top of landfill under plastic and, you know, all sorts of crap on top and below it. Like, it actually needs to be in some condition where it's fertile enough to break down because that's simulating nature mm. and not on top of plastic waste. So, um, ironically, like, that condition of it not breaking down, it still sits there, you know, in a pile. Um, and that's what people don't realise. Mm. And so we have this ethos if we don't bring our reuse cups, we don't buy coffee at all. But, you know, we don't expect everyone to do that. But mm. that is, it's sort of a thing where, like, you know, what's next best, but then after you've picked next best. So for me, even with our suppliers, we kind of look at home compostability as the baseline because at least at that point it's made mm. for your local, your own composting system at home. And if at least can be doing that, then maybe it's got a better chance of landfill just because of the way it's made. But bioplastic mm. materials are quite well known for not being able to break down properly and quite similar. That's It's happening in apparel and textiles at the moment where things are so mottled together, you can't even differentiate it. And that plastic liner, mm. and everyone's talked about that, like, is anyone, anyone wants to understand like, and, and this is a real thing, right? Hot coffee, if you sit it there for hours, people want it to last longer and not break down. So that's the other thing as well. So that's why we ended up trying to explore this mm. because there were the, those were the questions like, oh, I want to buy this but and supply this in my cafe, but my my customers complain that their cups are falling mm. apart within half an hour. Yeah. You know? mm. So it, it's tricky, but then reuse is really the way forward and it's really not hard. I, I go snowboarding and I put my coffee cup with hot coffee on the side of it and I snowboard. I mean, mm. if I can do it and not stack. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I, mean, I mean, ultimately, you know, a, you know, a coffee shop doesn't want to leave money on the table and that's the hard, that's the hard decision. But it, coming back to the transparency piece, you might be familiar with like the, the seven whys of inquiry. 
you know, just keep asking and peel, peeling the onion. So we'll we'll often use the methodology of going, well, who is the best person to answer these questions? Because it's, again, very hard to go and do a desktop analysis if you're, a, you know, and actually really work all these out. When you're working with your suppliers, ask them the question of, you know, tell me, show me, prove it. So firstly, you tell me why and how your product works, where it's sourced from, why that's a good thing. Might ask some more lines of inquiry in terms of, well, you say it's made from, you know, 50% post-consumer recycling. What's the other 50%? What's the process? Where's it made? You know, how far does it travel to get here? Some of those, if you can go that far, but actually asking them to link the whole thing together because they want to sell to you. So particularly if you haven't acquired their, their service or product yet, you're aligned with the fact that they want to actually get you to adopt it. So putting, reversing that and putting that back on, on them is a, is a really powerful way to save some time. And then you can make that assessment to how well you think they've proved it and if they're honest about what some of the disconnects are. So from a transparency point of view, when we're often that middle person advocating for the adoption of something or helping them find what the right solution might be, it's like, look, here is the most practical best solution for you today because maybe this doesn't have a closed loop yet. So, you know, and I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll ignore soft plastics for a minute. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, maybe we'll talk about something in a, in a kitchen, a prep area. You're going, you've got, you do a lot of prep, you use a lot of cling film in your prep. Well, one of the more, you know, immediate changes you could do would be to take something that's actually made from a waste product, like Great Wrap or something like that. And that's going to at least, you're not taking virgin materials in. But then, you know, what do you, where does that go? What, what's, what's your second step? Can you actually eliminate using a consumable at all? You know, maybe it's a lid system. You know, and there's, again, you think then sort of looking at going, well, longer term, you can add up how much you spend on this as a consumable and there's a potential small investment to be made. And how does that also improve the overall efficiency of your kitchen? And they are the ones that are close to knowing, you know, what are the food safety laws and those practices that they need to actually adhere to? But ultimately, and it was funny because when we were at Social Enterprise World Forum recently, we were talking with this amazing lady from South Australia who's tackled this little bit of a question in a similar way. And she does it in a public-facing manner with the company she works for. And she goes, give me a public statement that, that you, where you articulate why and how your you know, supposedly eco-product works. And that's going to be public. So if you're you know, blowing smoke we're not going to be held to account because it is very hard for us to assess everything you say. I'm not going to go and fly to your factory. Yeah. I can't validate how the conditions that you, you might even say you're certified fair trade, but you know, can I prove the complete supply lineage of it? And now we almost end up with this reverse whistleblowers type thing where it's like, no, I have some, in, I've, I've gone, I've gone deeper and you're not actually the one that's, that's suffered a reputational issue around it because you're actually being quite transparent. You might put your own label on it and say, look, here's what we've validated but it's incomplete right now. And there is no ultimate perfect solution to most of this stuff. It's saying, what's the most practical thing we can do right now? And how do we just continue to agitate towards it? But the transparency thing is, is, is I think it's, it's broader than just hospitality. I mean, we look in fashion, we look in clothing, we look in all these ones where the most ethical movers might come and start a movement. Then quite quickly, as soon as they start to build their own value and differentiation in it, the larger ones pick it up make it something that it's not and then it just confuses the market and it's really hard to, uh, to assess the validity of it. And when ultimately you look at a lot of things, like even with a lot of the ICO regulation on stuff and you go, well, now this barrier is too high for the small, the small ethical innovator to, to reach that. And it's, it's actually really, really frustrating from that point of view. And I think the way that we see a lot of them overcome it really well is actually just being very honest about their story and where they're going to next. It's a really good conversation. Or we can do what Germany's doing and 
put it back on the company to take back that product and break that down. <laughs> yeah, like are there? Are there it's a really good point, Gene. Like, are there are there places in the world at the moment which are actually doing the right thing, which we can look to, and then go, let's do that. Because mm. like, I feel like everyone, a majority of people, are trying to do the right thing. Mm. If you look at the Australian society, mm. they're trying to do the right thing. Mm. They're bloody confused. And I'm super yeah. confused mm. myself mm. in what the right thing is now. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, are there places around the world which are really doing the right thing, which we can learn from and actually adapt in our environment here? Well, Germany is doing a lot of progressive stuff with, you know, the product stewardship and, you know, companies having to take back their, their you know, their own goods. Yep. Then, obviously, South Korea, there is, they have a blank. Since 2005, they implemented a no food waste policy. So, their their like processing rates what was it it was 95 96 percent all of their food waste from the restaurants the apartments we we watched a zombie movie recently so it's apocalypse and even while being chased by zombies they were like oh honey i've got to actually throw out the food waste i get it down to the bin i i couldn't believe how ingrained it was in their culture and i really appreciate that because i wish we talked like that you know and we don't so i think i think this we know this conversation there's a lot of organization talking about how we do this how we do things right i just think that we just all need to be in the same room together and that conversation even with hospitality like the the silos are still there right and mm -hmm. so we love the way the way we can move towards from government to local government to hospitality mm -hmm. to uh you know we haven't gone all the way down to producer level because again that that visiting factories and trying to get a real autonomy like that's a that's another area for us if you wanted to pursue it but mm. then what's your your measuring stick right mm. and so that's why i mean by like i think all of this takes stages but by understanding each of these you know mm. then you figure out which which side you want to play in which pool do you want to play in and you know we've we've got very clear boundaries how ours starts in the city and ends in the city mm. and then for regional farms it could be like from regional to their own hubs like we all have a part to play, but the confusion doesn't really come from what product should I buy, but like, can I, can I, can I see whether the things that I'm generating can make something out of it? Like, that's recently we did a, a trade engagement with our new program that we're running with City of Melbourne and City of Burundara and City of Stonington. So we're running the Goal Full Circle program, which is to help businesses transition into circularity. But talking to one of the traders, she said, I don't have any food waste. I've done all the right things. Council keeps asking me if, you know, I need help. So I've, she's done what she could on a food waste level, but she goes, oh, actually I've got waste buckets. I've got heaps of buckets that I don't use and I stick it out on, into landfill. I don't have to do with it. And I said, we need buckets, <laughs> you know, that's an immediate resource right there. And lots of people actually have them and they're very useful things, right? So just by talking about it, you find the potential for something to be used. So even if I met, you know, you said, hey, I run five venues. Actually, we have this byproduct we, you know, we don't know what to do with. We don't want to throw in the bin, you know, by talking to someone else in the ecosystem. And maybe it's a completely different industry. They go, I could use that. And that's how the old school village vibes, you know, you know, just being resourceful, like pretend we're all living in an off-grid village somewhere and how does that thinking work? So that's one way of doing it. I think the <clears throat> I think the hard thing is we'll often look at, you know, amazingly inspirational areas like, you know, Scandi and, you know, some of the practices they've got in Finland and South Korea and Japan and go, amazing, look, it can be done. 
And we might appreciate the the cultural differences, but we don't always appreciate the regulatory differences. Mm. And so then uh, you see a lot of great ideas die when they come back to Australia because we look at our nested federated legal system here where we've got you know federal state local yep we've got massive overlaps between regulators and it's a big bureaucracy to to navigate anyone that actually is even trying to work at a policy level and i'll set aside the challenge of working in a pay-to-play political model where you know a lot of the big policies are written by industry to suit themselves Mm. but when i think it comes actually actually back to finding alignment you say well what are some of the big issues australia's facing if you were to try and inform policy so well we know energy security is is one of the elements we know we've got a, a big very well accepted issue around food waste and that's one of the biggest things we can we can address globally to to affect you know the climate emergency so how do we bring these two things together through the last couple of years australian agriculture has suffered a lot with the disruption around bringing in fertilizer for instance you know we import billions of dollars worth of, of fertilizer and most of it's you know it's made from you know sort of synthetic extraction you go well, again how do you actually get that up to the table to go you can implement a a policy or a fund to help change it that's actually what i think is amazing about victoria and i won't bag on any other states this is the reason I've, I've chosen to move to victoria and it's <laughs> Not anything because uh, Sydney is just a horror show of traffic <laughs> or that we've got better coffee down here. Yes. So I'm not going to say that. But, but you, know, we've got, you know, we've got Recycling Victoria, we've got Sustainability Victoria, we've got these entities that have really been set up and actually reasonably well-staffed at a, and I'm saying this as an outsider, with credibility to start to affect some of these longer-term bigger issues but to actually find value in industry and help Australia get its competitive edge. And I think that's actually, you know, it's easy to, to, to feel depressed about all the stuff that's not happening there is some amazing stuff that's moving along and quite easy again you look and you go well i can either work against the stream and really again try and create a revolution or i can nudge in and 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 flow and help maybe divert the stream a little bit and there is some really good stuff going on down here but it still has to ultimately come back to a change in in policy and and that's separate to all the other commercial realities so yeah i guess just to close out that that thought there is from from what we've we've seen in how some of the other countries address product stewardship the more successful ones that I've personally looked at, and you could even take a look at what you know IKEA started doing more recently with a buyback takeback, where they've actually led the intervention in the absence of a requirement to do so, and again they've come and they've found some increased you know, long-term viability from it for the, as a business. And I think that's the that's the hard bit to actually enable, but I don't think it's as easy to just drop a an idea from a different country into a into Australia and go look it can be done so let's do it here. It's great to be inspired, but yeah, the application's always a bit different. Have you noticed in your research whether you're doing that overseas and looking at that, but also in your dealings here in Victoria, that if you have potentially less councils at the table, less people at the table, that decisions get made quicker and then you get cut through and the reason I ask that question is I think about how I've worked around been fortunate enough to work around the country Mm. the easiest place to open a venue in this country is Brisbane and the reason why is if if it's it's one council Mm -hmm. it's Brisbane City Council which is one of the biggest councils in the world and I can open in the north and the south and the west and the CBD and I know that I'm going to get the same treatment from the health department Mm. with inside the council I know they're probably going to talk to me about liquor licensing mm. the same way with liquor department there's some consistency there yeah and that matters if you're a bigger business right yes you know if we want to operate you know even just talking recently about some some cross-border type type activity and go well 
I appreciate that if you're running a franchise or if you've got a larger business, that, that consistency is much easier. It's really hard running, you know, I've run businesses that have gone across all states and it's quite hard just working at all of your regulatory requirements. Mm. I argue the fact that for the smaller businesses, if we look at where, like we're trying to serve, yes, there's a frustration with how things change from one council area to another, but ultimately it's the fact that we've got a three-tier system that's the bigger the bigger challenge, not sure. how big a council is because a smaller business, they're not always operating a business in, in three or four council areas and getting frustrated by the differences. It's the, again, it's more of the overlap of, you know, the larger you are, the more you get to go around the other, you know, the other restraints that people have. You just go straight up to, you know, bypass VCAT, bypass whatever you want, get what you want. Whereas the smaller, you know, even developers that might want to be a bit more ethical to what they do, they work more within the boundaries and they leave money on the table potentially. Mm. I'll just say mm. that in architecture and planning, same deal. Like it is because it is the way everything is governed that it's quite difficult to, you know, like, you know, you say that like because Brisbane City Council is the biggest council and therefore if you were to open a restaurant or even build a building, it's the same, it's the same deal. And I had a friend who's an urban planner going to Singapore recently. And because it's like one government, one, like to make any decision, super easy, yep. right? It's just like, all right, you know, there's, whereas here it's like, it's all place-based, which is what the terminology for wherever you go, whichever state, local area that you're, you know, wanting to do something in. And so for us as well, like we have to learn every local, like for example, we wouldn't necessarily say, hey, use this circular supplier because it's actually manufactured in a different state. You know, so I do think there's merit in growing capacity across, like, you know, you find a really good product that's made in Victoria, but then maybe at some point they should open in other states, you know, mm. and therefore that becomes more localized and less carbon emissions. So that could be mm. something where as long as you want to go international or statewide, mm. it's something to think about. But yeah, mm. definitely the regulatory crap that we have to deal with doesn't help. I'll add one more comment to that. And that's actually that, you know, when you look at it again, a really effective stakeholder engagement, you know, you need to know the people you're working with. Mm. Now, if we look at a, a, get back to the question of a council and I'll, I'll set aside that obviously councils have got, always got their own, their own challenges, the, the political training ground for, for people that come into other areas of politics, but there's usually very good, well-motivated people working in councils. And so when they can, this, you know, if you look at their ability to know their people and be able to adapt their own approach to serve those needs, the larger you get, the harder that gets. So then the question is, you know, how do you actually again, you know, create a series of like, you know, nested layers yeah. where you can work towards the bigger, you know, the bigger overcoming the bigger issues, but do it in a way that really actually understands those issues. I mean, right now we're seeing huge differences up in Stonington versus in Yarra you know, what the last couple of years have done to that high street up in up in Chapel Street, the vacancy rates there. And it's it's not as a result, you know, it's not necessarily as a result of what council has done or not. It's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But you go, you know, how else would you pick up those differences and know how to best serve them? And that, that that's ultimately, I think, quite a, quite a big challenge. Mm. Mm. I guess I want to round out this conversation in, in a really positive light, Gene. Mm. I'd really like to understand like, the technologies in a bit more detail about how, what you guys are doing and, and what you're seeing the benefits are from the tech that you're doing using. For the longest time, so we've got partnerships, you know, with an AG tech company, which is how we process the food waste. 
and then oh, and we're still waiting for them to be able to give us a better deal on the machine so that we can order our own. Here's <laughs> <laughs> looking at you, but yeah, but then you know that's that's when the food waste has been food waste has been generated, and then we're just trying to find a more circular outcome to be able to grow food. So that's one narrative. So for the longest time, we haven't been able to look at what's generating the food waste. So with another new tech partner, so we've been nurturing this for the past year, and recently there was a there was a side grant that came through, which, or rather, it was like you know the beneficiary of a side grant that there happened to be some funding. This is with Circular Economy Victoria and Sustainability Victoria, and there it was a 10k equipment fund. And at the moment, you know, they were like, "Oh, what do we do with this? We need to get equipment." And so I was start thinking. So these, the, this other tech supplier, they're food tech. I've had to learn a lot about food tech, ag tech, climate tech. There's all these other things. We're not techies ourselves necessarily. We don't make the tech, but this new partnership has made me realize that we really just broker access to this tech. So just for anyone's reference, there are machines out there with AI that will measure your food waste before it gets into the bin, but they're only accessible to hotels and resort chains because it's big business. Same as the AG Tech. It's really for businesses. You know, IKEA has one, you know, MCG has one, Victoria Market, you know, all the big entities have, have such tech and they can get access to it, but nothing is available for the little guys. So small business owners on a high street, no way. You're not going to pay thousands of dollars to access this. So it's really with this new project we're about to launch. So we're calling it the Insight Light Program. It is based on a smaller version adapted from, you know, basically a, an experiment that was needed to measure food waste from an airline. And uh, so we've managed to bring it in with that, that funding to also train ourselves up to be able to use it and deploy it. Wow. Uh, we've designed the program to sit in a venue for six weeks. And uh, we are waiting to start. Basically, we have three free pilots and we want to be able to use this period to profile what's actually coming out of different venues. This will probably be suit. So it's designed for like busy, hot, small kitchens, right? Because again, you're not a hotel, you're not a resort. It will, it will actually measure. So it's got, it's got a weighing scale, a camera and AI tech. So it goes into the cloud and this tech will actually, a chef recently said, how do they know what kind of carrots I've got? Because we all cut it in different shapes. And the AI is constantly learning and mapping. And, you know, we're not just feeding this AI tech. We're also drawing on its previous experience. So just they've won accolades for this tech in Southeast Asia for the last few years, but they've never been able to prove a small business case. So that's what mm. we're trying to do. It's like, okay, can you... So for us, it's all an experiment. Wow, um, how exciting. It's also got an international SIM card in it. So apparently it can sit in a jungle <laughs> and still... Go to the cloud. <laughs> I can't wait oh, cool. to see how that works. But anyway, so very cool tech. We've got it sitting in our new office space at the moment, waiting to be deployed. So I've got a couple of chats coming up. And the idea is that if we can measure inventory waste, so prep waste and plate waste. So, so far on a hotel scale, there are some hard proven metrics on how much it's reduced food waste because it will inform menu redesign. Yeah you will actually get insights into what's actually generating even on a seasonal basis. I don't work in hospitality myself, so I actually really need the partnership of venues to understand this process. And for our tech partners, they know that with us, so we, we take care of the hard infrastructure, which is the machine, and they will take care of the tech on the software point of view. So even mm. if it was sitting in a jungle, they can still fix it remotely. Amazing. And that's what's really cool about it, because then at the end of the six week period, we'll actually draw on a database 
of images and, you know, basically groupings to go, hey, there's a pattern. Like, why is this happening? And then as a business owner, you can probably see what your staff is doing. <laughs> because honestly, no one stands next to the bin and, you know, looks at it. So we have the baby adapted version and we've just purchased, we've just gone to a hospitality group to purchase like trays. So we're now trying to work out how does this actually work and will our trays get lost or will people mistreat this thing? Or mm. So for it, it's also a learning process. Mm. And we hope that by the end of the trial, so in one year, we'll probably be able to do about 10 venues with the education, staff education, as well as a report at the end to go, what can you do with these? So on a chef scale, it might be, hey, I already do some of these things and ups upcycle it into a new product. But for other things, there may be something else. So we just published the, well, uh, we did a circular hospitality uh, video reel and publication series. And uh, we've met lots of people who are very clever with um, fermentation and like, you know, doing all sorts of really cool stuff in that space. I don't, we don't pretend to know this area, but these insights can actually inform that. Wow. Uh, yeah. I'm super curious about the plate waste. Yeah, well, it's interesting because sometimes Very it's strategic, curious. isn't it? You yes. know, you go into a pub and it's a, I want a big palmer and mm. I want to feel like, you know, I got good value for money. So Correct. often that means there's stuff left on the plate, whereas mm -hmm. other restaurants, not the same. So, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, bringing that down to a business intelligence point, point of view, you know, working in the larger venues and chains, you often get the chance to do analysis and really dial in, you know, your, your production methods. Whereas in the smaller ones, if you don't have access to that information, it's based on observation. And so that's what I think is actually going to be really, really empowering from it, to be able to say, look, not just how much plate waste is there, this is the dishes that it's coming from. What sort of prep waste you've got? You've got, you know, 40 kilos of carrot stems that could potentially be fermented into a stock or something else and going just by gifting that information, then, and this is the value chain that's got to be proven from it, which I'm, you know, just quite exciting is the fact that you go, well, what's the economic payback? You know, does it result in you purchasing less food but serving the same amount and does it ultimately reduce your impact but you've got to be able to come back and articulate how long it's going to take to kind of break even and and therefore for the for those venues that maybe don't care as much about the the climate issue and just sort of cold hard economic numbers to go we you know there's a case for you to adopt it for a while get the insights and and then sort of you know just keep keep optimizing so because mm. mm. there's dramatic benefit for both if they're sustainable if they're environmentally led or mm. if they're cost led it's mm. the same benefit and like we work with brands doing menus for them and, and development and that kind mm. of stuff and if we had that kind of information then we could know how much we can change oh. what i call pack size yeah. or, or meal size yeah. as they've done in chips and as it's done in chocolates at the moment in, in supermarkets to keep prices stable mm. rather than continuing to rise you just mm. reduce the pack size and they don't teach that in hospital, do they? I mean, my no. sister, who's a chef, she's like she started building a spreadsheet over a decade ago in terms of building menu design and working out, you know, how many grams of this is in that to get costings and margins and things. But they don't teach that in hospital school. And again, you go, well, how do you, you know, really build that out? So just so you know, like, so I've recently had a chat with like Food Waste CRC. And in the past, like around food waste, it's not really about reduction, but it's about what you do with the output. So it wasn't really a research interest area. Mm -hmm. But with this tech, there is a potential, they've already said that they would back this if we just got a 50 grand in funding. So they will give us match funding. And so we are now trying to work out 
if there are venue partners who will be keen to, you know, join this crusade. For us, we want to build a business case to be able to get more of these machines deployed because if it's only doing 10 venues, 10 or 11 venues a year, mm. that's not really making a dent on how many hospitality venues we've actually got. And we've had people in Sydney interested in it, you know, like I just want to know how far it can go. But more importantly, there would, with the funding, there will be research and hard evidence-based stuff going on to actually get more insights literally into what's actually happening out there across all different demographics for hospitality. Mm. So I would love this in a bakery. I would love this in, you know, a, a juice, a juicery, you know, a smoothie bowl shop, a Mexican restaurant. Let's find out what's happening there. And obviously all practices are different depending on the owner. But, mm. you know, if, you're, if you've got a burning curiosity, <laughs> let's find out. <laughs> So I guess the final question is like if people want to know about that information and know about everything you guys are doing, what's the best way to connect with you guys? Well, buying a glass of wine is always a good start. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the Cirque du Soil website is, is a great place to, to certainly do an inquiry through and, and connect. But uh, you know, I guess it depends if you're Melbourne, if you're Melbourne based or Victorian based, you know, we sort of spread ourselves fairly wide in terms of working quite broadly across all the other people working in this as a system. Mm. We've got the new great, venue down in Cremorne, the Waster Space, Aliyup, which is a very, very welcoming space. People can come in and hopefully start to help them solve some, solve some problems. But yeah, digitally is always a, always a good start. Yep. That's where our new office is. And it's a, it's a circular neighborhood hub by a guy who's also ex-hospitality or he's not so much ex, he's still in it. But yeah, I've met him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when saw the space before exactly. it got launched properly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, once again it's a I think it's a really great place to have a permanent showcase of what's happening. And there is stuff in there that's, you know, supply chain orientated with like reuse cups or, mm-hmm. you know, reuse milks for baristas like this. I we've been dreaming of a space like this for ages and so it's been really fortunate that we've got a, a new home to awesome. display things in. So the tech's living in there. If anyone wants to come and have a look at it, but we will be hoping to get it deployed as soon as possible so awesome. yeah well done on everything you both are doing like it's it's so important and i know from speaking with you today like how much you're going to cut through so well done on the great work that you're both doing as the the way to connect with the Cirque team is linked up in the show notes of this podcast so you can connect with them and uh, and hear about their journey gene Stephen, thanks so much for your time thank Th- you Thanks again for tuning to this episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed that podcast. That was super informative. I am very passionate now, so even more passionate than before this podcast. Please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. It's the only way we can keep doing what we're doing. So we'd really appreciate you sharing it along, leaving a comment or a rating. Until next week, stay well, everyone. Now, if you feel like you can never get on top of your back of house ops, you'll want to hear about our sponsor for this season, Loaded. Loaded's hospitality management software has changed the game for hospitality performance in New Zealand, and they've just arrived in Australia to help you do the same. Their everything-in-one-place platform helps you master your reporting inventory, simplify your recipe and menu management, reduce your cogs, and become an epic central hub that immediately puts you in control. I've seen Loaded's impact firsthand, and if you're running a bar, pub, restaurant or cafe, you need to reach out to their team. Check them out at loadedhub.com.